Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Gary Parker, and we've got an interview today. Finally, I've been trying to get one of these lined up for a while. Um, but uh, I got several several folks out there that are ready to do interviews that just can't quite seem to get them scheduled. But now we've got one, and I'm really looking forward to you hearing this. Uh, it's Aaron Mackey from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He's a staff attorney there. And uh, the EFF has just recently brought suit against AT&T and some data aggregators as part of uh, an investigation done by Motherboard earlier this year that exposed some location selling practices uh, that EFF is firmly believing is against the law. So um, uh, we're going to be talking about that suit and also why location is important in general and why it's so crucial that we guard the privacy of this information. I know a lot of people might think, yeah, I don't, you know, as usual with a lot of privacy things, people think, ah, you know, who's going to look at who, who cares about me or, you know, who's going to bother looking up my information? Who cares if they see I go to the grocery store? I mean, but there's, there's really a lot more to it than that. And so I'm really glad to have Aaron on the show to talk about this issue and talk about their lawsuit and the kind of the future of location privacy. Cause I mean, you know me, I'm a big privacy nut. So as much as this show is about security and privacy, I, you know, I, I'm a big privacy nerd. So uh, I find this fascinating and extremely important. And for me, uh, the first step on in, in all of these topics is awareness and transparency. So uh, it, it, I think it's good to talk about these things and to understand the real implications. So really glad to have Aaron here to talk about that. And it's actually a two-parter. So uh Without any further ado, let's get into part one of our interview with Aaron Mackey. Today we're talking to Aaron Mackey, who is a staff attorney at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, one of my faves, as you know. Uh, he works on free speech, privacy, government, surveillance, and transparency. Thanks for coming back to the show, Aaron. Thanks for having me, Carrie. So uh, the EFF uh, has recently filed a lawsuit against AT&T and a couple of other data aggregator companies in California, uh, claiming that they've violated privacy rights by selling customers real-time location data to essentially anybody who wants it. That's the way I read it. Um, so really happy to have you here to discuss this. So first of all, did I kind of get that basically right? Yeah, that's right. So um, our lawsuit alleges that AT&T, as well as two data aggregator defendants, violated, um, with respect to AT&T, that they violated the Federal Communications Act and the sort of pr consumer protections that are designed to protect people's sensitive data when it comes to sort of making phone calls and all the sort of data that's generated with that service. And we also allege violations of under California law. So uh, violations of people's rights to privacy under both the common law as well as the state constitution and that the defendants engaged in unfair and deceptive practices. Um, and finally, that they were negligent, particularly AT&T and how it handled um, their customers' data. And we're also seeking an injunction. We're asking the court to basically put a stop to this data sale um, because it's so harmful. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, we've been talking about this on the show off and on because these stories have popped up. And uh, I think I covered this originally when the Motherboard article dropped when that talked about this. But this has been going on for a while. I mean, you know, this is the, the I always look at this as the perfect counterexample to the classic, you know, if, if the product is free, then, or, then you're the product, right? Because in this right. case, the product is certainly not free. We pay a lot of money, right. arguably more than we should, Look, you know, given what, you know, maybe people in Europe and around the world pay for similar services. Right. Um, and, and yet, even though we're paying real good money for this, they're still basically double dipping and monetizing as much about us as they can. 
Yeah, and I think what that's that's such an insightful um, way of looking at this because really when we're talking about the Federal Communications Act and its protection, basically um, Congress, when it um, added this provision to the Communications Act back in the 90s, was recognized this, which is that the carriers, as they were beginning to deliver wireless service, were really in this privileged position mm-hmm. where they were able to learn so much about not only who we talked to, but where we were um, and sort of what we did um, and all this data that was being generated that they created these rules. Um, they're called the you know c- consumer proprietary network protections and basically tried to recognize and protect the fact that they shouldn't be able to leverage their position as being the service provider who has all this information mm-hmm. into using all this data um, and monetizing it in ways that the customers wouldn't expect. And and so, you know, we often talk in the world about sort of how, or at least in the United States, about the sort of dearth of consumer protections mm-hmm. and, and data privacy laws. But here's an example where, you know, Congress thought about this and was forward-looking and required affirmative, you know, knowledge and consent um, on the consumer's part. I mean, that's what the law requires. And, you know, what our allegations and the complaint are is like nothing of the sort happens um, with respect to how AT&T is using this data and how it's being used downstream by so many other entities. Yeah. And you, you said a mouthful. There's a lot to unpack. We're going to get through a lot of this thing. So, But I just want to make it clear at the get-go, because you said they're in a privileged position, which is so true, it is particularly when we talk about mobile, phone, mobile phones, because for the whole service to work, I mean, for, the, for them to be able to deliver a phone call to you or deliver a text to you, they, they have to know where you are. I mean, they have to, at least within a cell site range, they got to know what cell site is serving you so they could you know deliver the phone call or deliver that text message. So there is... Uh, yeah, unlike maybe some other services like flashlight apps that want to know your location. The, right. This is part and parcel to the service they're providing. They have to know where you are. There's no, there's no really opt out mechanism here, right? I mean, this is this. They are in this privileged position. They have to know this. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, the opt out would be to not have a cell phone, right? right? Because the the network itself is the whole purpose, like you just said, is to to know where you are. Indeed, right? Like our phones, without our knowledge or direction, are designed explicitly to be looking out for and connecting to the right. the strongest signal, the closest signal, uh, to easily transition as you're moving from place to place, because that's what the service offers, and that's you know that's the convenience and the advancement of the technology that we all you know love and enjoy about it. But there's sort of this other side. So the, the next technical question is how, how actually, how accurate is this info? Because if you really, in the old days, it was kind of like cell phone towers. Okay, well, we know what tower is serving that person, but that, that may be like a multiple square mile radius kind of thing right. back in the day. Is that still true today? Is that as accurate as it is? Or are they also somehow able to tap into things like GPS or other other sensors on the phone to refine that? Yeah. So, I mean, so there are a couple of answers. So, so the first is that, it, you know, I think overall it, it does vary, but I would say, you know, as the technology has progressed, particularly in denser parts of the country, but I think even in rural areas now in terms of, you know, having broadband-like connections and, and that sort of thing, there's so many more cell phone towers, the infrastructure is so much more developed. Um, and so I think even just off of cell towers, you know, it, it can be relatively easy to find folks. I mean, the, the motherboard piece sort of referenced how just with cell phone tower location, you could basically find the building that the reporter was in. But then you're right that there are these these sort of other batch of, of ways in which, you know, a provider can can 
find this information, whether it's via an app. But, you know, the FCC um, has created these whole sets of rules that are really sort of designed in a totally useful way, which is like what happens when all of us no longer have landline phones that connect to a physical address, but we just use our cell phones. When we call 911 and we need the police mm-hmm. or the fire or emergency services, how do we find that person? Right. So they, they created this E911 database and sort of pushed the carriers to make sure that they use things like uh, wireless beacons, Bluetooth, GPS, mm-hmm. um, and all these sorts of things to find people, right? So it's it's so particularized that it can actually identify not only like the building, but maybe the floor that you're on. And that's really useful. And I think, you know, the FCC was right in recognizing that this is something that's essential, right? The last thing you want to be doing in an emergency is to be telling explicitly where you are when you've got other things that are directly on your mind. So so that was great. But the, the FCC recognized when it sort of put all this through that this data is so sensitive, it identifies people in such particular locations that it should never be shared, right? Mm. There's no requirement of, you know, a sort of exception for, you know, consent or, or sort of knowledge or, or a reason to, that you could opt out of this. They just sort of categorically said, you can't share this. And as the, the reporting um, that came out earlier this year um, and the facts we used in part to form the basis of, of our complaints, we, sh- we see that that's not the case either, that this E911 data is also being shared and really being able to, do, to identify people's locations um, very specifically. Yeah, so we've referenced this motherboard piece a couple times now. So break that down for me, because I did read the article and it was it was long and it was it's actually kind of arcane. The the the, the number of levels involved between right. uh, even just between AT and T and a couple of these data aggregators to finally the the methods by which this reporter was able to you know pay about three hundred bucks to find out where somebody was. Can you kind of walk us through because there was multiple levels to this and the handoffs between this uh, this data? It's amazing how many people were involved. Can you kind of step us through like the the example sure. from the article? Yeah, so so I think there's there's a couple of ways, but I think sort of even before the the motherboard example, there there was another one back in 2018, which was that um, data from AT&T's customers was actually found to be used by this prison payphone company, Securus, yes. um, that was making its um, it sort of had a web interface in which anyone could query the real time location of anybody, and sort of to track the data flow, we know that AT&T had some sort of relationship with Location Smart, which is another one of the defendants in our lawsuits. And then they provided that um, same access to uh, a company called 3C Interactive. And then that data was turned around and made available to Securus. Securus actually, I think, purchased 3C Interactive at some point. And then Securus, as part of its provision of, they provide a whole host of services to um, jails and prisons. One of them was sort of this investigative tool, had this web interface at detention facilities where people could access it. So, um, you know, what we talked about is, is these sort of consent handoffs, which was that like everyone in the chain was sort of like, okay, you can have access to this data as long as you promise that you get consent. Right. And they just sort of said, okay, well, as long as we say in our agreement with the next party that they promise to get right. consent. And it just sort of rolled down the hill and no one was doing this. And so there was a New York Times story in which um, a sheriff or former sheriff, I should say, um, in in Missouri, was using this portal to access um, data on like the location of a state judge in Missouri, other mm. law enforcement members, and without their knowledge or consent. And 
and there's this funny moment in the reporting and that the, t- the detention facility sort of web interface that Securus operates was there was this, this sort of checkbox and it was like you promise uh, that you have the legal authority to do so and you must up- upload that legal authority here. Well, what they found was he had uploaded things like, like I don't know, random documents that were like <laughs> menus of of um, restaurants oh, and, God. And, and sort of other things. Like no, and, and so you know, it's sort of designed to have this artifice of uh, legal authority and authorization, but no one was actually conducting any oversight or checking. And and this individual ended up doing like hundreds of queries over the course of of his time, and was really problematic. And then so to sort of talk about that same sort of situation was happening in in the motherboard investigation. And in that case, what was happening was AT&T and the other carriers were sort of giving it to location data aggregators. Location Smart was one, Zumigo was another one, and Zumigo is a defendant in our lawsuit. And then there was this other third party called Microbuilt, and Microbuilt basically turned around and made the data available to a whole host of individuals, whether it was bounty hunters, bail bondsmen, creditors, landlords, even car salesmen. Um, So it's sort of like, you know, this weird thing where it's like, AT&T says, the carriers say, you know, we prom- make sure you promise not to disclose this to anyone. Pinky the, swear, the yeah. location, it's like, we, we promise. Uh, we won't share it with anyone, just this other party. And then that <laughs> other party's like, we won't share it with anyone. And then eventually down the chain, they're like, we will share it with anyone. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's just this really, really problematic sort of data sharing model. And, you know, on top of vindicating the rights of, of individuals to, to sort of not have their data disclosed this way. We really want to, you know, what we're hopeful for is to get into discovery and actually really understand what were the motivations behind this and and, and sort of what was actually happening um, and, and why it was occurring. Because, you know, it just strikes us not only as just sort of wrong, but clearly illegal. Yeah, I, I hope you I hope you prevail, because uh, I would hope that's illegal too. Uh, as I read the story, it really... What, what hit me, and maybe it's because I just watched uh, The Great Hack uh, on Netflix um, documentary, but it really struck me this is very similar to the whole Facebook Cambridge Analytica thing. And now there's a new Instagram kind of thing with a similar kind of thing where there's they've got, quote unquote, partners. And these partners, you know, agree supposedly to honor system, honor system only, abide by the supposedly strict privacy guidelines. Right. But there's no, apparently, no auditing in place, no enforcement of this. And until mm-hmm. someone gets caught doing it, you know, it just, it's allowed to happen. It's just kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, right. you know, sort of thing. And so really, I mean, to me, it seems like, like this is it's just like Cambridge Analytica, as far as I'm concerned, because in that case, there was supposedly this API that they were, they were only supposed to use for certain purposes, but it didn't, mm-hmm. there was no, no, actually, there's no technical thing preventing them from doing it. As you said yourself with this guy, you, I'm sure all the check was, is did somebody upload a document and check the box? Like the, right. you know. Oh geez. Um, yeah. So I mean, I think you're right that it's 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 like those types of scandals where there's these third parties that have access to the data and they perhaps make promises um, and then they don't follow through. What's what's you know what we think is worse in this situation is here you have a, a federal law that clearly says you you can't on mass make these customers' data available. And not only is that a prohibition, but the law itself sort of expresses a recognition of the intensely, you know, personal, private, and um, 
sensitive nature of this type of data. Um, so it's not just sort of like a prohibition, but there's also policy built in that recognizes the importance of the need to protect this data and the dangers that can result from sort of just widely sharing the data and making it available. So I, I think so, and, and I get this when I talk to other people about this, it's a kind of the common refrain of, okay, so they, you know, they, they know where I am. Do I, do I really care? I mean, who's going to look, A, who cares about me? So who's ever going to look me up? So it's usually like, right. I'm not important. And then there's, even if they did, do I care that they can see that I'm at home or at the grocery store? Like, why is it a big deal? So I'd like you to address that because I know it is a really big deal. What, what does it sure. mean to, to, for someone to know where I'm at? What does that tell them? Well, it, it, it basically tells them a picture of your entire life because it's not just who where you're at at any discrete moment, right? It's the accumulation of that data that um, you know the Supreme Court recognized just last year as being one that basically tells your entire story, right? If you can reconstruct where your phone is and you keep it on your hip at all times, we can reconstruct where you were and show that shows things like, you know. Not just your daily routine, but diversions from it. Um, mm-hmm. Do do you go to a church or another place of worship? Do you go to a doctor's office? Do you take a detour for some reason? Um, are you visiting an area that you don't normally do, and does that arouse suspicion? Mm-hmm. I mean, really, what it does is it it paints a detailed picture of your life, and um, you know, in in ways that I think are. Uh, at least on the aggregate, just as uh, intrusive in terms of a privacy violation as disclosing, you know, entire contents of of emails or other communications, because it's really sort of a reflection of what a person does and who they are every day. So we talked about some of the people that were customers of this. Obviously, bounty hunters, that makes sense. So these guys are looking for somebody. So knowing their location is obviously crucial for them. But what you mentioned, like car salesmen, and I know, uh, obviously, some other marketing purposes, like insurance companies, like I've heard stories of, it's like, geo, it's called geofencing, usually. And it's some, right. sometimes it's apps that do this, but this could be used the same way where, you know, if I'm an insurance, or let's say I'm an ambulance chaser, I want to know the people that are sitting in the ER. Because I wanted to reach out to them for some reason, right? What are some what besides the obvious law enforcement and stalking kind of aspects? What are some other ways that this marketing material is being used? Yeah, I mean, we're hoping to find out more. I mean, I think what they what they marketed as is that this is sort of a fraud detection and prevention mm-hmm. system. So the landlords and the car salesmen are sort of almost almost they're not quite credit check like in in sort of theory but what they're doing is like you know if you have someone's phone number and you query that phone number to see where its location is while they're you know someone is sitting across from you saying that they who they are it's another means of verifying mm-hmm. that that's the person because maybe it turns out that that cell phone is pinging you know uh, in another state or another county or something like that you know that that's sort of the the best guess for for what they talk about. They talk about the marketing material talks about it in terms of like verification and, and sort of um, fraud detection. And, and so to be clear, there are situations in which you know there are use cases like by banks and others mm-hmm. where that type of fraud detection is essential um, and and helpful. But usually the way that that's supposed to work, at least as the law is written, is that you give consent to the party that's querying your data and you give it for that discrete purpose. So if, if you're completing a, a sort of large, you know, you're buying something like a new computer um, or something like that, you, your bank can ask you, you know, to verify that and you could give consent to say, like, I'm actually at this store, 
right? So you can yeah. see that why that would be useful um, and how that could be helpful. Uh, you know, the other use cases like, uh, you know, you're broken down on the side of the road and you don't know it's it's a different place and you don't know what mile marker you're yeah. at. AAA can can ask you, you know, can we ping your location? And, and that's obviously a, a productive use. But there it's it's a one-off individual sort of up mm-hmm. the chain, but a first asking the, the customer. And so those those are, you know, nothing in our lawsuit, if, if we are successful, would prevent that type of situation, those situations from happening. The ones that benefit customers, the ones that are helpful to them, that also, you know, start with them consenting with knowledge that this is occurring. But the, the situations that are it's like, you know, a, a landlord making a decision as to whether or not to give you a lease based off of this information, in what world did you consent to that? <laughs> And then also, how do you? When do you ever find out that that was that, that was the mm-hmm. reason, right? Because because mm-hmm. they're just not going to give you the the property to, to, to lease. They're not going to give you know the car salesman's not going to go through with um, the sale of of the car. So there can be all these adverse determinations that are a result of these privacy invasions, and the consumer never gets to know about it. Um, and and we just again we think that that's illegal. Yeah. So, okay. Again, a lot to unpack there. So I, I wanted to get a little wonky and talk about what is, what are the, what are the legal definitions of notice and consent? Because, you know, th- that always comes up that, that there should be notice and consent. So I guess I, what I always assumed it is in this day and age, I gave that somewhere when I signed the terms of agreement, which is like when I, when I paid, you know, when I signed up for service right. with AT&T, it was some fine print buried somewhere, probably in language I wouldn't understand. Or when I opened the box on uh, or, or bought this app and said a yes to whatever the agreement was that, you know, that, that let me off the hook. And all of a sudden I've given, mm-hmm. you know, irrevocable notice and consent from now on is how does that actually work from a legal standpoint? Right. Well, so I think, you know, definitions of consent and notice can, can sort of vary, but I think, you know, in this context here, when we look at the federal law and the rules that the FCC has promulgated about what that looks like, there's there's probably some edge cases, but I can tell you like specifically what it doesn't look like is consent and notice can't be buried within the contract that you sign with your cell phone provider that mm. says we you give us here you are on notice that we share your location data with anyone whenever we want and by signing this agreement you give us consent blanket to mm. always disclose that data. Um, what it has to look like is something like a sort of one specific ask for a specific purpose that you you know about and then you're allowed to agree to right you have to opt into it so so those are the sort of features of how notice and consent are supposed to work if we're looking at the 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 rules that the fcc has implemented in under you know the statute um but you know and 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 that can obviously take a lot of different forms. You could give it verbally, uh, like in the context of calling AAA, they could ask you um, and you could verbally consent to it. You could receive a text message and respond yes, right? So it could look like a lot of different things, but what it can't look like is just sort of like you carte blanche, give them access to your data um, and allow it to be disclosed uh, for any purposes at any time in the future. So it's kind of like the old constitutional general warrant versus uh, the, the what we recognize today as a warrant, where you have to go to a judge, get a specific thing, say, I'm looking for this exact thing. And he said, okay, for this date, for this time, for this place, you can do this. It, it, it should be, it sounds like, it, what you're, it, analogous to that, where it's a it's a it's a per use kind of a thing. And, it, and, and do, like, do they have to keep a record of this? Like if, if I go back and challenge and say, 
and, and then they say, oh yeah, we gave Dorson consent. Do they actually have to be able to prove that they did in retrospect? I mean, they're supposed to have policies that they report on to the FCC about what that notice and consent looks like. I'm off the top of my head. I can't remember if they have to, you know, sort of report on mediating disputes about that. But it, it does require them at least to to sort of talk about how they how they present this information and, you know, that it is something more than just buried in a terms of service. Okay. And, it, and to, to be clear, this is there, you're saying that there definitely are specific laws that saying that, that, that the, the practice was illegal. It's not just a matter of they kind of lied about what they were doing or like was kind of false marketing thing where they where they said they did it, but they didn't, but they do. It's, it's, there's actually – this was illegal to get the get-go. Sharing this information, period, was not legal under at least yes. California law. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I noticed when I was reading this article that uh, one of the companies kept in their documents kept referencing all items governed by FCRA guidelines, which is the – I had to look it up. Fair, Fair Credit Reporting Act. How does that come into play here? What, what is that? Is that an element of this case? It's it's not an elephant an element of, of our case, but the the Fair Credit Reporting Act, you know, generally governs sort of collection and disclosure of sort of financial, but also personal identifying information that's sort of tied to that. And and I don't know a whole lot about the FCRA and sort of the regime, you know, but basically, like, we're not alleging a violation of the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what we're talking about here is a different regime that Congress created um, under the Communications Act that was about a particular type of data. Um, so, you know, generally speaking, in the United States, our, our data privacy laws are really sort of specific to like the type of data and uh, like a an, a sector or industry mm-hmm. right so we have like health data is governed by a different regime under right. federal law uh, driver's license data um, is governed by a different regime sort of credit reporting and sort of financial data is governed by a different regime but then here we're talking about sort of the the data that's generated in the courts of providing you with um, wireless service, but also just your if you still have a landline phone, um, the same rules would apply. And so, um, you know, there there there's probably some overlap in terms of what these entities believe are sort of their legal requirements um, under the Fair Credit Reporting Act as to what they're going to do. I'm not as familiar with those, but you know, in our view, that the carriers here are subject to the FCC's not only rules but the statute that prohibit this type of disclosure absent um, notice and consent by the consumer. Gotcha. Okay, thank you. Uh, all right, one, I want to get back to one more aspect of this. How that said that this was real time location data access. So, how real time right. is it? Like, I mean, within how much time could they determine where somebody is like how long ago? And also, was it, was there a history available too? I mean, I know that I think one of the things they had, you could monitor you know, from point a, when I buy the service, like a monitoring from them going forward, but can I right. go to someone and say, where has somebody been? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good question that we, we don't know the answer to. I mean, we have some, some of the documents um, and reporting that, that motherboard does sort of hints in that direction. That is that it's not just sort of, querying your your real-time location right at this moment but that the you know the the phone company maintains a record of of all of the different connections and and where you were when you made those connections with your cell phone and so 
it, it would seem to be triflingly easy to to sort of query not just sort of specific asks, but to ask for more sort of aggregate data um, that would sort of develop a historic picture. Um, and we know that this data exists for other purposes, you know, in the context of law enforcement, um, when they, you know, they used to get orders, but since Carpenter, they have to get a warrant for historical cell site location information. Um, so we know that it's available, that it's compiled um, for the purposes of, of, you know, billing and sort of network management by the providers that they provide access to the government and law enforcement in circumstances. So it seems like that there, it, it could be available as well historically. Now, as to the question of like how real time, that's also one that we're hoping to get the bottom to. Like, it seems like some reporting indicates that the querying is done and it's sort of the last time that the phone um, has pinged a cell phone tower mm-hmm. and told it what its location is. But it also, we, we seem to, there also seems to indicate some time in which someone who has access to the network can query a particular device on that network and, and cause that device mm-hmm. to report back. So it, it seems, it, we know that those possibilities exist. And so we are, you know, what, one of the things we're looking forward to is sort of like getting more clarity about exactly what that means. Is it, is it the last time that your phone pinged the tower? Does the query from, say, a bounty hunter or another um, entity that has access to this data, does that query not just say, like, when was the last time that Aaron's phone connected? Does it say, hey, reach out to Aaron's phone and ask it where it is? You know, those are things that we're hoping to, to get to the bottom of. Right. Okay. And as a software engineer, what that sounds like to me is that there are there are APIs. There are This is all programmatic. There's, there's, there's right. no calling somebody at somebody's office who's going to look it up and then get back to you. This is this is computers talk with each other. You come back and spit out a, an answer to a query. So that, yeah. that's pretty real time, but real time enough for me. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's how it worked. You know, I, I it clearly with like the example in Securus, there was not a person at the other end mm-hmm. um, monitoring these these queries and, you know, either for verification purposes or just to r- provide and return the data. Right. Um, it's, it was definitely happening with like an API or some other sort of direct access to to this data, so I, I know that this is the the suit is only in California. So for us who are not legal experts, explain what the what the strategy is or, or, or why it's only in California. I guess maybe because it's, there are particular California laws that don't apply elsewhere. I'm just guessing, but explain for us why it's only in California. And then I'm curious to know if, assuming this goes this goes and you win, will this benefit people in other states? Yeah. So 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 you're right about why California is is both that California has really strong uh, consumer privacy laws and a recognition. Um, there's sort of a strong both under um, under the law, just a recognition of an individual right to privacy. And so, you know, we, we sought to vindicate that just because it's here. And then, you know, what happens if we win you know, what it will show is the reason why we brought California claims, but we also brought a federal claim is we believe that the federal law that Congress had had protected individual um, privacy in this way and that these um, carriers, you know, we're suing AT&T, um, but ostensibly any carrier subject mm-hmm. to the federal law. And if we're successful and the court finds that there was a violation here um, and then enjoins, you know, stops AT&T from ever um, engaging in these practices again, Every other carrier is going to be on notice that they are they did violate the law, and if they continue to uh, engage in this behavior, they also will be violating the law. Um, and so, so you know, it's sort of a one-two punch that we're hopeful to sort of use the the private um, the privacy rights that California law recognizes, while also um, you know 
use this federal law that we also think you know is being violated and if that's the case then then yeah it will have broad impacts not just in california but across the entire country so you mentioned other carriers and i was going to ask this next what do we know i mean i can't remember what the motherboard article said i think it was it focused on at&t but at this point do, do you know that verizon t-mobile sprint um have also done are have done similar things do we and, and they're they're right. next on the docket if, if, this, if this goes well <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so we know that all the carriers engaged in this at some point in time. The the reporting from Motherboard seems to indicate that Verizon maybe was was one of the the, the first carrier to to end these practices, um, and then in, in correspondence with. Um, both the FCC as well as members of Congress, uh, both in the Senate and in the House, um, have written to the carriers and asked them, you know, what are you, how is this happening, um, and what are you doing to stop it? All of the carriers have said that they're going to stop it. You know, the the, the reason why we chose AT and T is is we can't take them for their word, because when the first story started uh, broke by the New York Times in 2018, there was a round of congressional and FCC inquiry, and AT and T mm-hmm. said we are stopping these practices, we are ending our agreements with the parties that enabled um, you know individuals to to have access to this via Securus's portal, and you know, people took them at their word. Uh, and then in, in January of 2019, the first Motherboard article came out and there was, um, you know, again, a, a round of inquiries from both regulators and members of Congress. And, and AT&T said, we're, we're stopping these practices. Uh, the reporting continued for, you know, another six months in which it was continuing to show that um, right as the reporting was occurring, that AT&T still had these practices mm-hmm. ongoing. Um, and I think they've now said something to the effect of, you know, these practices have ended or will end shortly as the agreements expire. And, and you know, quite frankly, like that, that's not good enough for us. That's not good enough for consumers. And we believe that a court, uh, we're not going to take their word for it. We're going to require a court um, to find that they've stopped those practices or to hold them um, and prevent them from engaging in these practices in the future. So as we've just seen, you know, Facebook kind of got, I mean, everyone was in shock that Facebook was fined $5 billion over Cambridge Analytica. Oh my gosh, that's so huge. And, you know, and, and I was talking to somebody about it and they're like, oh, that's, that, that's got to hurt. And I'm like, well, they made like, I don't know, 50 or 60 billion last quarter, you know, or, or something crazy like that. So, and they're like, oh, <laughs> so, you know, so besides obviously setting a precedent and kind of establishing firmly that, you know, that, that these lines were crossed, what would a meaningful, I guess, punitive damage be in a situation like that? Or I don't even know if you're seeking that, but what, what yeah. would a meaningful settlement be that would, that would cause these other companies to take notice and maybe you know, right their ships? I mean, I think this is in part why, why EFF, um, as a civil liberties nonprofit organization, we, we brought this fir- this lawsuit and partnered with a law firm, Pierce Bainbridge. And, and the reason why we're in this is that this is, for us, this is not just another sort of data breach concern Mm -hmm. where we you know we as a society rely on our civil law system to police this behavior and and we empower individuals and and class actions to to do this um you know what we're seeking here is not just you know money to 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 sort of deter um at&t's practices but we want a finding in 
in a, a legal finding by a court that what they did was illegal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you know what happens in, in the FTC settlement with Facebook and, and what so often happens in these cases, right, is there's no admission of wrongdoing. There's there's money that changes hands and, and you know, everyone sort of goes about their way. Mm-hmm. But we, you know, we're in this because we, one, want a court to find that what they did was illegal under federal law and California law. But two, to say that, um, you know, the court, to order them to stop doing it to, you know, a court cannot just um, extract damages from uh, an entity who has done something wrong. Uh, the court can actually order them to take certain actions. So, you know, in addition to trying to stop this, we're also, you know, our complaint asked the court to sort of identify or push them to to reach out and see if they can take steps to mitigate um, some of this downstream harm, you know, not just sort of cut off access, but mop up um, and, and sort of claw back potentially the sort of access and the data that's out there, and and so that's what we're we're seeking. You know, we're we're not just here um, in an effort to try to, you know, get consumers some money and 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 find you know the bad actors. I mean, that's certainly a part of it, right? Mm-hmm. But we're also in it because we're we're actually trying to establish a precedent that this type of behavior is wrong, and that there are strong you know use the strong laws that are on the books to hold them accountable. All right. So, and with that, we'll, I'd like to segue into a little bit of the, I guess, the political or governmental aspects of this, not really partisan, but why, if, if these are, if they're breaking federal laws, why are our government agencies not the ones pursuing, finding and pursuing this? Yep. And why does it have to be done through private organizations? I am as equally mystified <laughs> as, as you sound. That's the end of part one. You'll have to tune in next week to find out uh, Aaron's opinions on what's going on with our government and why the existing laws in the books are not being enforced by the agencies that are there to do so. Uh, that's an interesting discussion. We'll talk a little bit more about kind of the kind of the political aspects of things and the governmental and civics maybe aspects to how these things are supposed to work. And, and we'll also talk about what you can do to help protect your privacy and kind of get involved. Aaron's got some really great ideas about that as well. So tune in next week for that. And then you're definitely going to want to tune into the show after that. I'll get back to some news because there's plenty of stuff going on. Uh, nothing super critical that I, you know, that it can't wait. So I will kind of sum it up uh, in our next news show, but there's always so much going on. So it's never a dull moment. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. That way you will definitely not miss any of the future episodes. And um, you can also catch me on Twitter at, at firewall dragons. You can of course, check my blog at firewalls. dragons.com. And if you want to get those pushed to you, you can just sign up for my newsletter. Usually the blogs and the newsletter are the same, not always, but uh, usually the same. So if you want to have those sent to you automatically in your inbox, you can sign up for my newsletter on that website as well. And of course, the whole, the granddaddy of all these things, the, the progenitor of, uh, of everything we've done here so far is the book, FirewallsDon'tStopDragons.com, just chock full of stuff. It uh, makes a great gift, if not for yourself or for somebody else. Uh, check that out on Amazon or on A-Press, my publisher, and uh, you can see lots of the good reviews. You can check it out uh, and, and get reviews. And of course, if you have one, I'd love to get a review uh, as well. So that's it. So next week when we have part two of our interview, and until then, stay safe and don't get caught with your drawbridge down.